Hi, writers. Welcome to our new edition of the podcast about writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. When we were in grade school and junior high school, were there more terrifying words than this from our teacher? Class, put away your books and take out a pencil and piece of paper. We're having a pop quiz. Remember that? Holy cow. It was the end of life as we knew it on earth. Aren't you happy those pop quiz days are over? Well, they're not. Here's a pop quiz. What do these famous novels have in common? The Lord of the Rings, Lonesome Dove, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Outsiders, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Anne of Green Gables, and Little Women. Time's up. These are novels from different eras, and they are of different genres. The similarity is that, is that they are all buddy novels. The protagonist has a, has a buddy, either a friend or a relative. Many buddy novels are beloved classics, such as the ones I just mentioned. Here they are again with the buddies. In The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, it's Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. In Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, the buddies are Woodrow Call and Gus McRae. In, in To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, there's Scout Finch and her brother Jem Finch and the little boy who visits in the summer named Dill. Uh, the Outsiders by Essie Hinton. Hinton, the, the buddies are Playboy Curtis and Johnny Cade. In Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, it's Huck and Jim. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it's Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. In Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery, Anne Shirley and her friend Diana Barry. And in Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, it's the sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. Close friends, buddies, are terrific tools for us writers, and here are some of the reasons. First, friendships are, how to be profound, good. In real life, we like friends and they like us. They're understanding and forgiving and helpful and loyal. The same is true in fiction. Readers like reading about friendships. Uh, friendships are almost always a pleasure to read about in a novel. That's, that's what they have in common with dogs, a pleasure to read about in fiction. One of my favorite series of novels is Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander, Sure, the stories have exciting battle scenes and, and wonderful glimpses of life at sea and, and on land in Great Britain 200 years ago, and the writing is lyrical and powerful, but one of the main, maybe the main attraction is reading about the friendship between Captain Jack Aubrey and Dr. Stephen Maturin. Uh, the understanding and loyalty between the two is a great reward, or are great rewards for the reader. Uh, they first meet in the opening pages of the first book in the series, which is titled Master and Commander, and this meeting has become a famous meeting between two fictional characters. I've read that meeting 
a dozen times. I just, it's three or four pages of pure pleasure about how these two meet. A second thought, a major benefit of friendships in a novel is that they put together two people, sometimes more than that, who talk. This dialogue usually eliminates the need for interior monologue, which is a character thinking. Instead of thinking something, the character tells the friend, and dialogue is more interesting than thinking. Uh, An example is Sherlock Holmes, who discusses clues about the case he's investigating with Dr. Watson. He talks out loud rather than thinks about the clues. A third idea, a friend in a novel, a friend to the protagonist, can offer the benefit of contrast. As you know, contrast is where we place two things together to show their differences or, or similarities. Blue is bluer when placed next to yellow. In Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, the character Woodrow F. Call is serious and stoic and he's pragmatic He's determined, uh, he's ambitious, and he's reserved. He doesn't say a lot. His friend Augustus Gus McRae is laid back and easygoing. He's an optimist, and he's playful and adventurous. Reading about the relationship of these two characters is a great pleasure in Lonesome Dove. A fourth idea about buddies is that uh, a buddy, a friend, opens up plot ideas. Uh, Stories are about characters. And if you add a character, a new character, you'll likely have more story. Uh, A friend is a great prompt for uh, story elements. A fifth idea about uh, buddies in a novel are that the friend can offer a second point of view. Uh, The buddy offers another set of eyes, and he can go places and discover things on on his own, and he can offer a different take on things. Uh, A buddy can be somewhere with his or her point of view where the the protagonist can't be. Maybe the protagonist is is a Dallas detective who needs to stay near the crime scene, while the buddy can travel to Houston to interview people. The, the buddy is a great way to spread out the point of view. Those are the advantages and some thoughts about adding a friend to our novel. Uh, friends add many elements, all of them good, to our plot. I like learning how writers live and work. Mason Curry, in his book Daily Rituals, tells us how creators live and work, including a number of writers. Willa Cather's novel, My Antonia, and her novel of Pioneers, are among my favorite novels to read. Uh, Willa Cather lived from 1873 until 1947, and Mason Curry, in his book Daily Rituals, reports that in 1921, an editor visited Willa Cather in her Greenwich Village apartment. Cather said she works from two and a half to three hours a day, and she said, quote, I don't hold myself to longer hours. If I did, I wouldn't gain by it. The only reason I write is because it interests me more than any other activity I've ever found. I like writing, 
going to operas and concerts, travel in the West, but on the whole, writing interests me more than anything else. If I made a chore of it, my enthusiasm would die. I make it an adventure every day. I get more entertainment from it than I, I could buy, except the privilege of hearing a few great musicians and singers. Uh, to listen to them interests me as much as, go- as a good morning's work. For me, the morning is the best time to write. During the other hours of the day, I, I attend to my housekeeping, take walks in Central Park, go to concerts, and see something of my friends. I try to keep myself fit and fresh. One has to be in as good form to write as to sing. Uh, when not working, I shut work from my mind. That's Willa Cather talking about how she lives and how she works. And here's a second uh, writer from uh, Mason Curry's book, Daily Rituals, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, Hawthorne claimed, Mason Curry says, that he could never write during the warm months, only during fall and winter. But he still needed several hours of solitude a day. In Concord, where the Hawthorns settled after their marriage, he would stay alone in his study until the early afternoon. And Hawthorne said, quote, I religiously seclude myself every morning, much against my will. Uh, he wrote that to his editor. And then he said, and remain in retirement till dinner time or thereabouts. That's Nathaniel Hawthorne. Dinner for him was the midday meal for which he joined his wife at about two o'clock in the afternoon. An hour later, he would head into the village to visit the library in the post office. By sunset, he would return home and his, and his wife would join him for a short walk to the river. They had tea and then Hawthorne read aloud to her for one or two more hours. That's uh, Mason Curry talking about Willa Cather and Nathaniel Hawthorne in his terrific book, Daily Rituals. Let's take a quick break. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. I received a good question from listener Cameron. How can I avoid interior monologue if my character in an important scene is alone? What a good question, and I'd like to offer a few thoughts on it. If your character is alone and you want the reader to know what he's thinking, you can have him say it out loud, as in talking to herself. Maybe a sentence of this is fine, but much more and it gets gimmicky. Another way for the reader to learn what a character is thinking when that character is alone is to not have him be alone. Uh, One of the main reasons writers use buddy novels is so that the protagonist and the buddy can talk back and forth, telling each other what they're thinking. Uh, As I mentioned a moment ago, Holmes had Watson, Aubrey had Maturin, and Shirley had Diane. Uh, 
a lot of what these characters are thinking is revealed because they say it out loud to a friend. Uh, particularly those protagonists who don't have much of a governor on their talk, such as Anne Shirley in, Green, uh, in Anne of Green Gables. Another way to handle thinking where the protagonist is alone is to show rather than tell what he is thinking. My leg hurts is telling, and that's, that's thinking. He's thinking his leg hurts. He looked at his leg and winced, is showing, and while it doesn't visit the character's mind, it indicates to the reader that his leg hurts. Sarah was afraid to cross the bridge, is telling, and it visits her mind. It's interior monologue. Sarah stepped back from the bridge and shook her head, is showing her thoughts here, particularly given the, contra- uh, the context of the scene. She's afraid of the bridge. Julie wondered if the pistol was loaded. It's telling her thoughts. It visits Julie's mind. But showing her thoughts would be Julie pressed the pistol's magazine eject button, glanced at the 45 bullets in the magazine, and shoved it back up into the grip. This shows that she was wondering uh, whether the pistol was loaded without visiting her mind. Max didn't know what 25 plus 33 was. Uh, That's interior monologue. We can show that. Uh, Pencil in hand, Max stared down at the math test, bit his lip, then shook his head. This shows that he's stumped. He's having trouble with the equation, and we don't visit his mind. So showing rather than telling, showing rather than visiting a character's mind is a great way to let the reader know what the character is thinking. Uh, Even complicated thoughts can be shown with a couple of sentences rather than visiting the character's mind when the character is alone. And I want to mention another way, uh, maybe the best way to reveal what a character who is alone in a scene is thinking. And while technically it may be interior monologue, it doesn't come across as visiting the character's mind. Uh, If your protagonist is alone, the reader will expect him to think because keeping his thoughts to himself, because there's no one to hear him, is difficult, Uh, uh, keeping the reader away from his thoughts. So when the protagonist thinks, it's as if the protagonist is speaking to the reader, and that's fine, it seems to me. Uh, My caution against interior monologue is is subject to this refinement, I think. Uh, more interior monologue is, is all right. If there's no one in the story he can talk to and he can't show it. Um, here's how author Michael Punky handles thoughts when the main character, whose name is Glass, is alone in the novel The Revenant. Uh, as, as I read this, and, and maybe as you hear it, I don't think about interior monologue, yet the reader is, is inside Glass's mind a lot. Here's Here's uh, from the novel. Suddenly he knew. A hollowness seized his stomach half an instant before the first rumbling growl crossed the clearing. The cubs skidded to an immediate stop, not ten feet in front of Glass. Ignoring the cubs now, Glass peered toward the brush line across the clearing. He heard her sighs before he saw it. Not just the crack of the thick underbrush that the sow moved aside like short grass, 
but the growl itself, a sound deep like thunder or a falling tree, a bass that could emanate only, a bass that could emanate only through connection with some great mass. The growl crescendos as he stepped back into the clearing, black eyes, as she stepped back into the clearing, black eyes staring at glass, head low to the ground as she processed the foreign scent, a scent now mingling with that of her cubs. She faced him head on, her body coiled and taut like the heavy spring on a buckboard. Glass marveled at the animal's utter muscularity, the thick stumps of her forelegs folding into massive shoulders and above all the silvery hump that identified her as a grizzly. Glass struggled to control his reaction as he processed his options. His reflex, of course, screamed at him to flee, back through the willows, into the river. Perhaps he could dive low and escape downstream. But the bear was already too close for that, barely a hundred feet in front of him. His eyes searched desperately for a cottonwood to climb. Perhaps he could scramble out of reach, then shoot from above. No, the trees were behind the bear. Nor did the willows provide sufficient cover. His options dwindled to one, stand and shoot. Once one chance to stop the grizzly with a fifty-three caliber ball from the Anstat. The grizzly charged, roaring with the focused, uh, f- with the focused of a protective maternal rage. Reflex, again, nearly compelled Glass to turn and run. Yet the futility of flight was instantly apparent as the grizzly closed the ground between them with remarkable speed. Glass pulled the hammer to full cock and raised the anstat, staring through the pronghorn sight in stunned horror that the animal could be, at the same time, enormous and lithe. He fought another instinct, to shoot immediately. Glass had seen grizzlies absorb half a dozen rifle balls without dying. He had one shot. Glass struggled to sight on the bouncing target of the sow's head, unable to align a shot. At ten paces, the grizzly lifted herself to a standing position. She towered three feet over Glass as she pivoted for the raking swipe of her lethal claws. Point blank, he aimed at the great bear's head and pulled the trigger. That's the end of the story excerpt from The Revenant. Uh, See how the reader learns a lot about what Glass is thinking. Even though Glass is alone in the scene, uh, and because of the action, uh, the times we visit Glass's mind doesn't seem like too much interior monologue. Uh, It's a terrific scene, full of action, and, and we hear his thoughts, and it just works fine here. Regarding interior monologue, the main thing we want to avoid is navel-gazing, where the character thinks and thinks about how he feels about about things. There's no hint of navel-gazing here. Too much is happening. It's too exciting. And even though we visit uh, Glass's mind, the scene works wonderfully. I received an email from Mike in Sydney. He said, Could you please take the time to answer a question for first-time novelists? Do you write the story that is speaking loudest in your mind, or do you write the story that has 
broader market appeal. Uh, Mike's question is a good one. Uh, I don't know Mike's plot or his situation, but let me give some thoughts about his question. The first thought is that it may be that the story speaking loudest in your mind, in Mike's mind, indeed has market appeal. There are many genres in popular fiction, and within each genre there are subgenres, explorative genres such as science fiction and horror and literary have wide plot boundaries. Same with romance and historicals and detective novels. Uh, it's too easy, it's too glib to say that anything goes these days in novel plots, but Today is the Wild West of storytelling. The story that is speaking loudest in your mind likely belongs in a genre. Most likely it meets the market. If uh, you look around, you likely will find stories something like yours. And I don't think uh, you or Mike needs to fear that the story is so far out there that it is too original for the market. It's all been done before. One school of thought is that there are only five plots. Man against man, man against himself, man against nature, man against society, and man against God. And all novels are derivative of these five. The literary agent Donald Moss has said, there are certainly no new plots, not a one. There are also no settings that have not been used and no professions that have not been given to protagonists. That's Donald Moss. So as unique as your story is, the one that's speaking loudest in your mind, it's probably been done before and it likely has market appeal. A second thought is, but there may be folks who want to write a novel that doesn't meet the market. Uh, Portugal's Prince Henry the Navigator said in the late 15th century that, quote, no mariners or merchants would ever trouble themselves to, to sail to a place where there is not profit. I, I agree with this sentiment. Uh, writing for the market, aiming for the market, offers guidance to us writers. Marketable stories have a certain structure, uh, a certain presentation. That structure is the subject uh, of these podcasts. We can learn how a story is presented, one that will sell in the market. There is guidance for us. Uh, people who are not writing for the market uh, can do anything they want in the story if, if they're not trying to get it published. Uh, they can use stream of consciousness or uh, undeveloped characters actions that don't go anywhere and don't contribute uh, to the point. Uh, they can tell rather than show page after page and chapter after chapter. Uh, they can write lengthy chronologies instead of B.C. to B.C. plotting. Uh, the story doesn't even need to end. The writer can quit any time without tying things up. But when the writer is done, what has she got? Uh, probably nothing anyone else will ever read. The writer has done the equivalent of, of standing alone in a forest and talking to herself. 
So unless we are writing as, as a form of therapy for ourselves, we should avoid a story that is so weird that it can't be set out in a, whale, in a way that appeals to the market. A third thought, uh, if, if you are writing exactly what you want, exactly what you want, uh, whatever is uh, shouting uh, loudly in your head, uh, you may be more passionate about it than if you are writing for the market. Uh, passion may drive, drive your uh, typing as you create it, uh, may drive you to write, and maybe that's true, but it's, and it's good to be passionate about some things, but if you are writing a story for the market and so using strong techniques, aiming uh, for a story others will love, you'll get a lot of pleasure about it. You'll have told your story and done so in a way that appeals to others. I think that's a great goal. Uh, another thought uh, to the idea that if you're writing the loudest story in your head, you might write something uh, you might write something unique and individual. But there are lots of things in the world that are unique and individual that don't amount to anything because they didn't follow a structure. In the Stephen King novel, The Shining, Jack Torrance types out, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, a dull boy filling page after play, page of that one sentence. Uh, it's unique and it's individual, but what does it amount to for Jack Torrance? Nothing really. Uh, we writers can be unique and individual, writing a marketable story. So if you have a story that's uh, screaming most loudly in your brain and you don't know whether to write it or, or to write a story more to the market's liking, here are some things to think about. Do some research. Your story is, is likely marketable. It's likely in a genre. In all likelihood, you can tell the story loud, that is loudest in your mind using the solid and proven techniques of fiction writing. That your, your story is loud and, and dominating your thinking about plot doesn't mean it's not marketable. You can make it marketable. Maybe you can make some compromise in your plot if needed to make your story more marketable. Maybe there are some things you can change or just tweak to make it more to the market's expectations. Why not shoot for the market? I have been mentioning how writers live and work in this podcast in a, and in a couple of prior episodes. Here's a great quote from the essayist John Podoretz. Let me tell you about writers. Writers sit. Then, after a while, they stand. They pace. They sit again. Sometimes they talk on the telephone or they surf the Internet. At some point, they generate words. They go over those words. Then they generate some more. They stand up. They sit down. I have just revealed to you the great secret life of the writer. That's John Podoritz. Uh, I suspect he's right. I'm glad you were along for this episode. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>